Happy versus Flourishing, episode 11. Today's guest has travelled the world speaking at international positive psychology and positive education conferences. She's a speaker, trainer, lecturer and a published author and she supports individuals and organisations to practice, promote and embed well-being practices into everyday life. And so we're going to hear from today's guest, Frederica Roberts, in just a few minutes. This is the the podcast where we try to give you ideas on how to have a more meaningful life, how to have a a better quality of life, just small things that we can, small changes we can make to, to implement that. Why not subscribe to the episode or to the podcast, uh, share the episode with anyone who you feel may get some benefit and uh, it would be great if you could leave a review. Right now it is time for this week's show. Happiness versus flourishing. My guest today is Frederica Roberts. How are you Frederica? I'm very well thank you. How are you Tony? I'm pretty good thanks. Um Considering this is a, a Monday morning and I'm an evening person or a night person, I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing quite well today. Actually. <laughs> Do you know, I'm like that as well. I'm, I'm definitely not a morning person and that Monday morning, especially when it's uh, as it is at the moment as we're recording this, it's autumn and it's quite grey and I like sunshine. So, but yeah, all things considered, pretty good. <laughs> so you like sunshine and you live in Yorkshire. I know. <laughs> How did that happen? I'm Italian and I live in the UK. I love sunshine you know how did that happen I'm not sure well I do know how it happened I fell in love at university that's what happened all the best laid plans and all of that well so what you did you come over here to study Yes, although I wasn't exactly living in sunny climes before, although I'm Italian, I'm Italian and German actually, but I grew up in Luxembourg. Uh, mm. We moved there when I was two years old and the climate in Luxembourg really isn't much better than it is over here. Although in, the summers tend to be a bit nicer, but you know, winters were pretty dreary growing up. Um, and I came over to the UK in 1990 to, to go to university and actually went to university in Yorkshire, in Bradford. Um, mm. And uh, I met my husband, who's not from Yorkshire, but he was also at university there and um, we met in the first year and, and that was it and I never went back. I actually had plans to potentially move to Italy uh, after I'd uh, graduated and, and make a career for myself over there and then I was thinking further study in the US maybe at some point. <laughs> None of that happened. I stayed in, in Yorkshire. I never, never moved away from Yorkshire. So, <laughs> Wow. And when you, your original studies, is that connected to what you do now? or did you No, not again? at all. No, I, um, my original, my first degree was um, a Bachelor in, um, of Science. <laughs> I don't know why it was a Bachelor of Science, but it was uh, Business and Management. Um, after that, I took a year out and then I did a PGC, so a Postgraduate Certificate in Education. So I qualified as a teacher um, mm. and I didn't actually go into teaching then for a few years uh, because trying to teach business studies at the time you know I kept being knocked back and told well you've never actually worked in business you've only ever been in school and university go and work and then come back into education so I went and worked for a bit and um and then actually realized that um, I, I spoke six languages and I could actually teach languages and it had never occurred to me because I didn't uh, think that having not done a teacher training course in language teaching, I didn't think that uh, I could teach languages, even though actually in the meantime I'd, I'd qualified to teach English as a foreign language. Um, but then, yes, I taught, I ended up after I'd had my two daughters, I ended up teaching part-time French and German in secondary schools for a couple of years um, and that kind of nearly destroyed me really I left through stress um, which is one of the reasons why I do so much work in education now to to support well-being um, and then went and did lots of other things worked in recruitment for for well over a decade ran a recruitment business I also ran a small food business for a while um, and eventually kind of decided that I needed to pick something that I was really passionate about when I fell out of love with recruitment um, and uh, that was well-being because it was something that from my personal life experience and my family's experience of, of dealing with setbacks and and lots of sort of roller coaster emotions because both my daughters have con- congenital heart conditions um, 
I, I wanted to look into what it was that I was doing that was keeping me happy and keeping me mentally well um, and discovered positive psychology. And that's kind of the journey that I've been on for nearly the last decade now. So I, I graduated with a master's in applied positive psychology last year. And um, now I'm, uh, I'm, for my sins, I'm, I'm, I've embarked on a doctorate of education, which uh, I've, I've done the first year. Uh, I've got another five years at least to do um, and that's kind of again putting well-being into the heart of education so my research is focusing around a model that I developed um, during my master's for my dissertation and I'm now focusing on uh, on doing some further research into that so yeah very different to what I originally set my sights mm. on when I was 18 <laughs> but then life is like that isn't it absolutely and and I'm, I'm wondering for the people who heard you mention just then about um, doing positive psychology could you give a description of what that is for anyone maybe who's not so sure about that? Yes, of course. So positive psychology is really the science of well-being. It's um, applying scientific research methods um, to, to actually give people techniques, tools, uh, practices to look after their well-being. And um, it's, it's had a lot of sort of misconceptions, uh, quite often sort of known as, you know, happyology. And mm. I remember my first essay at university was actually looking at the critiques of positive psychology. And uh, a lot of that was around the sort of almost what, the, what people call the tyranny of positivity, you know, and I hate the mm. phrase positive thinking you know because it's, it's that's not what positive psychology is um, so positive psychology is really about human flourishing and it's about not just individual flourishing but societal flourishing as well when you look at the very very early writings of the the the, the researchers that that came up with the concept of positive psychology people like Martin Zeligman who's known as the founding father of positive psychology you know the very very early writings and in fact there were there was a group of psychologists that got together in about I think it was either 1999 or 2000 and uh, they, they wrote uh, a positive psychology manifesto and it's only about two pages of A4 and it's um, it's called the Akumal manifesto because that's where they met um, and um, and in that very early manifesto it actually talks about flourishing societies it talks about um, positive institutions so you know positive schools that focus on, on well-being and positive psychology etc so it's it's about um, taking the very best that we know and that we've researched in, in terms of what makes humans be well and flourish and one of the ways that um, it's quite often explained is if you think about your mental health and your overall mental well-being on a scale of say minus 10 to plus 10 um, then psychology of old used to deal with all of that and then um, primarily after World War II actually uh, it seemed to shift really and only deal with the minus 10 to zero so it was dealing with the the, the disease model it was dealing with uh, treating mental illness and that was partially because after after two world wars there was so much trauma to deal with mm. that psychologists who wanted to earn a living pragmatically <laughs> you know the only way they were actually going to earn a living was to deal with trauma and and mental illness because there was just nobody willing to pay for the, the that lovely ideal of going from the naught to the plus 10 you know it was all about dealing with the here and now and, and what what was happening at the time and and then uh when when martin zeligman and other researchers uh really looked at this towards the end of the last century they went well hang on a minute you know what what's happened to this notion of 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 flourishing and of being well why are we only dealing with disease why are we only interested in bringing people to a zero when actually we could be looking at somebody who's a plus two could maybe become a plus eight, you know, in terms mm. of their, their well-being. And, and that's where positive psychology really began. And that's what it's all about. Mm. And so when, when you were deciding what you were going to study and what, what it was you wanted to, to do, were there, are there many sort of different areas to go in within that, within positive psychology or, or not? Yes. Um, one of the things I've really enjoyed about my master's is that um, you had a lot of choice in the modules that you did. Mm -hmm. And even within those modules, you could really choose the direction that you wanted to go in when it came to your assignments. So um, the first module, the introduction to positive psychology, we had five topics, as, as you often have, you know, when you're doing a university course, and, and we chose one topic to do an assignment on. But that was because it was a broad overview to give us a grounding. But then after that, uh, we 
we had a broad choice of modules. So some people, for example, went down the route of positive psychology and coaching, for example, and performance positive psychology, uh, looking at, you know, athletes, for example. Um, other people like me looked at things like positive education. I did a module on positive neuroscience as well, for example. So looking at all the neuroscience research into flourishing and well-being and how that's linked to positive psychology. Um, I did a module on positive relationships um, that was absolutely fascinating in terms of just how much of everything that, that affects our well-being is underpinned really by our connection to others. Um, then there were modules um, on child development for those that wanted that, modules on, on flourishing societies. Um, so there were a lot of directions. And then within each of those, so for example, I did the... Um, a positive uh, neuroscience module but the assignment I did I still did uh, based on education because that's where I do a lot of my work I work mm -hmm. a lot with with schools not just with children but with teachers as well and occasionally with parents um, on giving them all these sort of research-backed evidence-based tools and techniques for well-being um, mm -hmm. and when I did the neuroscience module we we had to kind of do a, a a research proposal, even though we weren't actually going to be doing the research. Um, I wish, <laughs> I wish they'd let us loose on neuroscience equipment, but <laughs> not something you get to do in a one-year master's in positive psychology. But um, so you could choose what you wanted to do. And so I did a research proposal based on the idea that um, there's there's a lot of studies that you can do on measuring um, cortisol levels, so stress hormone levels in people's saliva. Mm -hmm. And so my proposed research, theoretically, was on um, on testing children's cortisol levels uh, before days on which they had tests at school, mm -hmm. and then doing a control group um, a control you know a control group experiment where you'd have one group um, doing nothing <laughs> and just going into the test another group would be doing a um just a random activity just so that you know there was an activity that wasn't the one I was testing and then the test activity was to actually do some um some mindfulness techniques before they went into their tests and basically you'd measure their um, their saliva cortisol levels before each of those and you'd measure them afterwards as well um, mm. and you'd be able to see whether actually doing mindfulness techniques before a test actually helps to reduce the cortisol levels uh, of children and reduce their stress levels. So there are a lot of things that you can do within positive psychology that take you in all sorts of different directions um, mm. in terms of where your interest is. So if, if you are somebody, for example, who coaches business people or coaches sports people you can really go into the positive psychology of coaching and performance as well um, and and use that to support people in their performance so yeah it's a fascinating topic and very very far-reaching hmm. well I think my, my listeners would, would strangle me if I didn't bring you back about that that test that school test about the cortisol levels and, and find out the results of it <laughs> well because I never did it I don't you know I wouldn't oh, be able to wow. tell you it was just a hypothetical that oh, the, the exercise for us was the in the actual writing of the research proposal um okay. I wish okay. I could run that test these kinds of things are very expensive to run um mm. so and and that's not where I'm taking my doctorate um I'm uh, my doctorate is uh, is more on sort of whole school systems for well-being and embedding well-being into education so um, the term positive education isn't necessarily widely understood, but it's about combining education for academic success with education for well-being and education for character development. So um, during my master's, I developed a model for whole school positive education based on existing models and where some of the gaps were. And so I want to do some more research into that in my doctorate, uh, because otherwise doing some neuroscience type stuff around cortisol levels would be a fascinating thing to do. But I think I would really really struggle unless I found someone to actually fund a PhD in it. I think I'd, I'd struggle to do that kind of study as, a, as an independent doctorate where I have to fund it myself, unfortunately. Right. So, so what is it you're doing more than on a, on a kind of sort of day-to-day -day basis? My, my work is quite varied. Um, so I train primarily. So I work uh, mostly in schools uh, mm. and that can take a number of forms. So it can be from going to deliver a workshop to children of all ages. I've, I'm saying all ages. I've done very, very little with the youngest kids, but I've worked with children from age 
eight all the way up to 18 um, in schools. So it can be, you know, workshops as part of a series of workshops to give them tools for well-being. Um, mm. It could be a 20-minute assembly in a school where I just go and talk to them about some, some well-being stuff. Uh, it could be some teacher training, anything from a twilight session after school for half an hour to spending a whole day in school working with teachers and other staff. And one of the things that I've been doing quite a lot of recently through the, I, I run a, a community interest company that I set up last year um, and one of the things that that we do is to actually go into schools or groups of schools academy trusts for example and work with their staff to support them to set up their own um, action research projects so research that's based on their practice and that they do as part of their everyday work as teachers um, and so we we give them support on understanding positive education and character education uh, so some some positive psychology grounding some character um character education grounding and then we give them some basics on how to set up a research project where to find literature to to back up their ideas um and then they they go off and they do projects based in their classrooms and uh, we kind of guide them through that with a few sessions in between and then they write that up and uh, and we end up with a, a booklet produced by the school or group of schools with all of their research projects in that they can then share and disseminate more widely so that's kind of the, the bulk of the work but I've also started uh, doing some lecturing in positive education so um, the I'm, I'm very lucky that my uh, dissertation supervisor uh, Dr Ilona Bonniewell um, at Anglia Ruskin University where I did my master's uh, she is one of the um, most eminent names in in positive education and um She's actually booked me on a number of occasions now to do some teaching on the on the very same masters that I completed last year. I actually taught on the positive education module uh, for that in February, and then she also does some teaching at the uh, um, Singapore School of Positive Psychology. So I did some teaching uh, in the positive education model at postgraduate level there for her um, in the summer. And so there's a bit of that going on, and I'm also talking to another university at the moment who are wanting to bring in more positive education into their positive into their positive psychology teaching uh, so we're we're having conversations about how I might be involved with that um, I do a little bit of speaking at conferences so um, mostly education conferences uh, so um, I get brought in again by schools and academy trusts etc occasionally uh, organizations such as for example I spoke at a conference for the society of heads a couple of years ago um, so uh, mostly where uh, teachers and educators hang out and I'll, I'll speak at those conferences or run workshops at those conferences and also at international uh, positive psychology and positive education conferences uh, they tend to be more academic but uh, very very fascinating to talk at those events as well so I've been lucky to to speak at conferences in uh, in uh, in Texas and in uh, uh, where else have I spoken in Australia I was in Melbourne last summer uh, or winter as it was there and um in Germany as well uh, and um, most recently I spoke at a conference um, that's run every year by uh, a government department in Luxembourg it's it's an organization called CEPAS which is uh, uh, the Centre pour l'accompagnement et psychosocial scolaire or something like that it's basically psychosocial support and guidance for schools and it's a team of psychologists uh, many of whom are school based as well as the kind of core team that's office based that advises schools that's a part of the department of education for luxembourg and uh, i i spoke at their annual conference uh, earlier on this year about positive education because they're keen to bring more of that in so that's the other side of what i do and then i write as well so i've written three books to date um my first one was Recipe for Happiness. I wrote that in 2013 and that was really as I was starting my journey into positive psychology and a lot of what I discovered was as part of the research I did for that book. Um, and then in 2018, I co-wrote a book aimed at primary school teachers to give them lots of practical tools. It's called Character Toolkit for Teachers and I co-wrote that uh, with uh, another fabulous lady called Elizabeth Wright, um, whom I was doing a lot of work with at the time as well. 
And we've since actually launched a companion product as well through the same publishers uh, called Character Toolkit Strength Cards. So there are a lot of uh, packs of strength cards out there that people can use for, with adults for um, for developing uh, awareness of character strengths and, and working with those from a sort of well-being and positive psychology perspective. But whenever we went into schools, people were asking us for ones that were particularly aimed at sort of the younger children. So we developed a set of those which also came out this summer. And then also this summer, my latest book came out, which is aimed primarily at school leaders, but all age phases, because it shows examples from around the world in settings from independent high-end schools to to very strapped for cash state-funded schools from all the way from uh, nursery and infant schools and even some examples from higher education um, and and so that book is really showing the, the the science and and the research behind my sort of positive education model for whole schools but underpinned with lots and lots of case studies from interviewing um, well-being leads school leaders and and teachers uh, around the world world so that's kind of and on top of that recently I've started working part-time for a, a small mental health charity as well based in in the northwest in Cheshire here in the UK it's a charity called Chapter and I'm their well-being training facilitator so very much doing what I do in my own work anyway so but just in a more localized uh, area for a charity and with more of a mental health perspective as well so training in businesses um, and potentially in schools as well now that I'm on board as, as that's my area of expertise as well so yeah that's what I do and you 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 mentioned about your involvement in schools and um one of the things that I started thinking of as you were talking is the the impact that the whole COVID situation must be having Mm. on, on school children and you know especially from a fear anxiety side of things yeah has have you been sort of asked to help much with with that side of things in any schools well, at the moment, schools are very much um, trying to, to firefight, I think, and kind of get through the everyday. So um, I know that the demand is there. Um, and I've been working with a lot of other educators who are very um, busy in the sort of well-being field in education. And between us, we can see that as we talk to teachers and we talk to, to, to school leaders, you know, the need is there. Um, mm-hmm. But that they're not at the moment finding much room to actually bring people in to do an awful lot. But um, there's a few things bubbling. So the government have brought in a... Um, a grant and a program to support return to education well-being here in the UK. It's a little bit confusing how different councils, because the grant is awarded to councils and then they have to kind of distribute that training to schools. So there is potentially some stuff happening with that and I'm talking to to one such council at the moment about potentially getting involved with that, which would then help, you know, quite a large number of schools as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, I'm, I'm talking to a council about potentially working with them to look at the bigger picture as well so you know not just looking at education in isolation but actually we need to look at well-being from a whole family and whole community perspective and how I might be able to help with that Um, Mm. but but certainly I think this isn't going away Um, I'm actually at the moment working with um, so I'm part of something an informal group of educators that got together at the beginning of, of lockdown way back in in sort of March April time and we called ourselves the Education Wellbeing Collective. And between us, we have uh, safeguarding leads from schools and, and local authorities. We have uh, teachers, head teachers, consultants, trainers. You know, it's, it's quite an eclectic mix of people all over the country that, um, that focus on well-being in education. And um, because we could see the need was uh, was so vast, we've actually decided to to get together and co-write a book. And I'm one of the four co-editors of this book. And and then there's about 25 authors that are going to be contributing content to this book. Um, it's very early stages yet, but we've been talking to three publishing houses. And at the moment, um, watch this space because there's uh, one publisher who's uh, very keen to potentially offer us a deal and they're meeting today to discuss it. <laughs> so, um, but, but so, you know, so there's different ways of helping schools, even if it's not immediately necessarily going in and doing the training at the moment. But yeah, the need is definitely there. And I think it's something that um as this situation evolves and and keeps going you know that there's going to be more and more requirement and it 
it's interesting to see how much more awareness actually the COVID situation has raised into well-being. Uh, interestingly, probably, I mean, yes, for the children, but for the vast majority of children, probably they're not the ones that are, that are suffering quite as much as potentially the adults. Um, it depends what their circumstances are. And of course, for some children, it's been very difficult because not everybody's been, you know, on lovely walks and doing lots of baking and, and colouring of rainbows. You know, for some children, it's been a very, very traumatic experience being at home during this time. Um, and, and then the return to school and, and everything that comes with that. And, and obviously for children with pre-existing health conditions who are very worried about being back at school, etc. But actually, everything I'm seeing is that the ones that are struggling the most are probably actually the, the teachers and all of the staff in schools um, mm. and obviously the parents as well. So probably the adults and, and to some extent, probably the older kids. Um, so, you know, the younger ones just take it in their stride, really. I mean, I, I have nieces who are uh, in nursery and year one. So, you know, they're, they're, they're three and five and they're completely unconcerned, you know, um, because they're just, life is just different, but they just crack on with it and, and they just, uh, you know, go on. But the older you get, the more you become aware, I suppose, um, of, of what's going on. And, and yes, for teachers, it's been particularly, I think it's the teachers that are really suffering from the strain because not only do they have the worries, but they have the organizational nightmare of making it work. Um, and so for them, it's been very, very stressful. And of course, a lot of teachers, not just in the UK, but in, in many countries, haven't really had a proper break for a very long time uh, because even over summer they've been busy planning and, and, and trying to work out how they're going to return to school in September. So yeah, th there is definitely a need and this has highlighted that actually, you know, we might be in a much better position mentally, emotionally, if, if there was a lot more widespread um, work done in schools on well-being because then we'd be better equipped mentally to deal with it. So it's uh, hopefully we're taking some lessons forward for that into what's happening in education. It would be nice to see some real change. Mm. I mean, do you, I get the impression from some of the things you've been saying that you're very well aware of, of how things are happening in many other areas around the world in terms of sort of education and well-being and so on. Do you know of, is there any, are there any countries that are dealing with this particularly well? Uh, well, certainly the, the, the mental health and well-being in schools and the work that's being done in that and has been done for a long time, there are certain places that do lead the way to some extent. Um, there are parts, I, I want to say Australia, but it's not all of Australia really, it's, it's parts of Australia that are particularly very good um, on, on positive education and, and, and really world leaders. And in fact, the, the, the words positive education, that phrase came about um, at Geelong Grammar School in, um, in Australia near Melbourne. Um, now that is a very, very, very high-end independent school. Um, and a lot of this work has unfortunately emanated from, from very high-end independent schools, which is problematic in itself in terms of, you know, again, giving access to everybody. But actually, they might be the ones that initially have the, the, the kind of resources to start doing a lot of the research and look into this and then disseminate it more widely. And certainly Geelong has done a lot to disseminate that. And there's a lot of work going on at the University of Melbourne um, and also the University of Adelaide in Australia into um, well-being and education. So positive education, bringing positive psychology in. Um, having said that, in the UK, we've got some fantastic work happening, particularly in terms of character education. So at the University of Birmingham there's the Jubilee Centre for Character and Virtues uh, which has a brilliant output in terms of research into character development in education and in fact uh, they actually set up a free school um, the University of Birmingham School which is based on the university grounds and is a fantastic school to look at in, in terms of everything that they're doing um, so there, there are pockets um, in, in terms of Europe, probably the UK is actually, even though I get very, very frustrated at how seemingly little we're doing in the UK on, on, uh, on positive education, others mm. that live and work in different countries in education tell me that actually 
you know, we're quite way ahead compared to a lot of Europe when it comes to positive education. Um, there's some interesting stuff coming out of the US as well. Character education there does have quite a strong hold, but it tends to be slightly different slant on character education. Um, but, but there is, you know, I've been speaking to a lot of educators uh, from US schools um, in terms of amazing stuff that they're doing and also a lot of schools that have, you know, really switched on school psychologists that do a lot of stuff on well-being uh, preventatively and another place in the world that's that's um, really at the forefront of a lot of this stuff in education is Dubai actually uh, so I mentioned Dr Ilona Bonniewell uh, before I know she's done a lot of work with the Dubai government for example and and there are a lot of eminent researchers that have um, so that's one of the countries where there's a lot of work being done on positive education and then a lot of people would probably have heard of Bhutan and their gross national happiness uh, mm. measure and um, the government of Bhutan commissioned some work so one of the big researchers in uh, um, positive psychology in education so in positive education is um, a researcher called uh, Dr Alejandro Adler uh, and he did his PhD under Martin Seligman who as I mentioned earlier is uh, known as the founding father of positive psychology and his PhD research started uh, by implementing a uh, a resilience well-being program in schools across Bhutan on, on request of the Bhutan government and then he replicated this study in uh, Peru and in Mexico and each time he just went bigger and bigger and bigger so this study covered uh, many thousands of children and teachers uh, and actually what he did through that study is to to show quite clearly that if you put in a lot of well-being and resilience measures then actually you get higher academic attainment so it's a really important piece of research actually so those are countries again where there's been some really interesting developments so wherever you look around the world there's some really interesting pockets of stuff um, happening and it's it's spreading <laughs> with mm. people like me who won't shut up about it <laughs> we touched upon there about the whole sort of covid situation and you mentioned about how actually it's the it's the adults it's the teachers and so on that are probably more mm. stressed than than the actual children um I'm wondering, what are your, I mean, this is maybe an impossible possible question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> when this, say, for example, in by next summer, this whole COVID situation does blow over and mm. then we become completely out of lockdown and things are back to normal, whatever that is. Um, I'm wondering where, where you think the, um, the biggest problems might lay from what you've seen of how this has all sort of played out so far. Ooh, that is a really difficult question to answer, really. I mean, I'd need um, need a bit of a crystal ball for that one, wouldn't I? Mm. I mean, I suppose the first premise is that I think likelihood of by next summer all of this having blown over is sadly quite quite low I think by next summer we may have learned to live with it a bit better and and have perhaps more therapeutic uh, options etc and maybe even a vaccine who knows but um, I, I doubt very much that um, it'll have gone away and I, I really do hope actually that we don't just go back to normal because mm. you know not just in education, but in life in general. I think there was a lot wrong with normal. I think mm. um, there's some really good stuff that has come out of this. Um, so maybe yeah. rather than look at where the problems might be, if I may twist your question and turn mm. it around, I would Absolutely. like to look at where the opportunities might be. Yeah. Um, because I think this, not just in education, but actually in the way that we work, for example, uh, is is a massive opportunity. Um, you know, if you, if you look at, um, you know, the reduction in greenhouse gases and all of that you know the carbon mm. footprint that we all leave behind that there's been a massive reduction because of how we've we've changed the way we work and mm. whilst obviously we want to be able to start traveling again etc what this has shown is that actually there is a lot of travel for business purposes that is not necessary mm. and there's a lot that can be done remotely um, the whole remote working now I've been working
working for myself and working from home for 10 years now. And so for me, it's made absolutely no difference in that respect. Um, but for so many businesses, it's been a fundamental change. And actually, if you think about businesses that traditionally are office-based but have massive office bases, so call centers and places like that, where you would think, well, you can't just suddenly uproot a call center. You know, you need all the equipment, you need all of that, and yet they've done it. Mm. You know, very quickly, they've been able to have vast call centers that now operate from people's homes. And what that means in terms of flexible working, in terms of people being able to return to work, whether they have health conditions, whether they have young families that they need to work around and all of that. If you think about what that means in terms of commuting costs, in terms of quality of life, you know, Mm. I've done the commute, you know, I, I did that for many years, spending an hour and a half each way in the car on the way to the office. And, and, you know, some of my most productive days were days when I was snowed in and couldn't get to the office and had to work from home because you're not exhausted by the time you get to the office from having sat mindlessly in a car for an hour and a half. Um, and, and so the, the, there is all of that. And in, it, from the perspective of w- where I work, you know, in education, as I say, there is an opportunity to really rethink how we run schools and whether you know, do we really want to focus on testing, testing, testing and grades as the be all and end all and just comparing schools on grades as if they're just some kind of number factory? Or or do we want to actually look at, uh, you know, the, the fact that we need to, to bring whole human beings out at the other end that are capable of withstanding challenges and overcoming those challenges and that are adaptable in a world that is changing so rapidly? Uh, and I know it's a cliche, but, you know, I'm, I'm in my late 40s now and if I think of, you know, from the day I started university where I, you know, I had an electronic typewriter at home and that was the height of technology. And I came to university and I remember the first time I saved some work on a computer and uh, I then went to a different computer and couldn't work out why I couldn't find my work because I just saved to the local machine and I had no idea of the concept of, you know, whether you saved to a network or to the machine you happen to have sat at. I didn't know how to use the equipment. So now we're doing everything, you know, remotely via internet, etc. And I've taught myself an awful lot of stuff along the way and I've des- designed my own websites, etc. It's a, it's a massive journey in the course of just 30 years. For for kids that are at school now, you know, that, that change is exponential. So actually, you know, the, the focus in my opinion, needs to be on very much that kind of adaptability and thinking skills and creativity and and how do we find solutions to problems and how do we innovate and all of that kind of thing. And actually enabling them to retain what they naturally have actually i mean so ken robinson um died very recently and he he was very well known for a fantastic ted talk on yeah. on how schools were killing creativity and you know children are innately creative and curious and really good at problem solving it's just if if they weren't they wouldn't learn to walk and talk and you know and and somehow and it's not just our education system in the UK or the US or Australia or Canada or whatever it seems to be a pretty widespread problem that you know we seem to knock that out of them in in favor of kind of a learning by rote system etc and actually I, I see this as an opportunity to change that uh, which is something that many of us have been banging the drum about for a long time and I don't I don't mean that exams don't matter or that academic subjects don't matter you know we need doctors we need lawyers we need engineers and for that you do need to learn specific content as well but it's it's about balancing that out about learning Mm. content as well as learning how to use the content um and and my husband is a chemical engineer he's run chemical plants and and he gets very frustrated you know when when he's recruited people quite often that actually the the first thing they have to learn as new engineers on the job they have the the knowledge technically but the 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 application of that knowledge is where the challenge is and and Mm. that's what so often is actually lacking and quite and quite a lot of universities when they're teaching those technical degrees the first thing they have to do is actually teach those 18 year olds how to think (laughs) critically Mm. um so i I think there is an opportunity when we look for example at blended learning etc you know that rather than just looking at how can you find ways to get the teacher to stand in front of a class of children that aren't physically in the room and Mm. give them knowledge how can you actually use technology 
to empower children to find out a lot more information for themselves and to learn more independently because that's actually probably going to be a lot more useful to them and that's something that COVID could give us the opportunity and and as I say the same thing is for the world of working now for a lot of entrepreneurs um, this might not be that different because a lot of them probably do work from home but what that mm. does change is that the, the organisations that as entrepreneurs we work with might be working differently and so that impacts on the way that we work with them and the opportunities that this opens up and even things like I mentioned I work for a charity that's based in a small area in Cheshire in um, in the northwest of England um, you know because all the training that we can offer we can now do remotely um, that actually means that although we're a Cheshire based charity in terms of the local support that we offer uh, people that we're funded for that is local but in terms of the the trading income that we get as a charity from delivering training we can do that anywhere so it's a real opportunity for businesses of any size and I've spoken to many people who since the lockdown you know have gone international when they weren't before I myself mentioned you know I, I was I was teaching in Singapore earlier in the summer now if I'd had to to travel over there maybe um, they would have chosen somebody who was more, more local but mm. I was somebody who had the skills and the experience that could deliver it and because it was remote it made absolutely no difference where I was mm. um, that of course has other impacts as we start doing that and working more globally that we need to look after our well-being in terms of considering the hours that we work and you know if, if we're having to work on sociable hours because we're working with a different part of the world then we need to consider how we adjust our working week to, to compensate for that so that we're not burning the candle at both ends and wearing ourselves out as well so there's a lot of adjustments and and, and I think the next few years if I'm going to predict anything is that it's going to be a lot of adjustment for everybody and and sitting with that discomfort of having to make changes in our lives and changes in the way that we work. Uh, but one of the ways of sitting with that discomfort is to look for the opportunities, uh, mm. you know, and, and look at what we can learn and what we can enhance and, and how we can get better at doing stuff, which is exciting. Mm. Well, from, from a wellbeing perspective, how do you think, you know, obviously there's lots of people listen, listening to this have been for the last few months sort of homeschooling their children mm. and that if, you know, if the lockdown does come sort of tighten up again, that might be happening again. Yes. I'm just thinking from a, from a wellbeing perspective for people who are trying to juggle their, their, their business, their work, and also school their children. What can you, are there any sort of tips that you, you'd give parents on that? Well, the first thing I'll do is, you know, acknowledge that it is a real challenge. And, you know, I've, I've said many times over the last few months how lucky I consider myself to be that my daughters are adults and <laughs> I haven't had to do that. I, I have friends and family who have and I understand how challenging it is. Um, so there is no easy fix. I mean, sometimes, you know, you go through stages in life when stuff happens that unfortunately you just have to get through it and it, there is no easy answer to make it easier. Um, from a practical perspective, the one thing I can say, you know, is to remember as a parent that if your child is at school for five, six, seven hours a day, they're not actually being actively taught for all of those hours. Uh, mm. There is plenty of downtime, there are play times, there is interaction, social interaction and all of that. So actually, if you can spend two or three hours a day maximum doing productive teaching activities with your children, mm. that is actually a lot. So you shouldn't be putting pressure on yourself thinking that you have to be actively teaching your child all day, every day. Uh, that's not realistic and it's not what actually happens in schools either. So, um, so I would say, you know, break it up little and often and you can do a lot of learning through play and through everyday activities so it doesn't all have to be directed school style learning um you know if if you look there can be a lot to be learned from home educators and i've not home educated but i have friends who have and you know their learning was very much project based around stuff they would do around the house around okay not so irrelevant when you're in lockdown but around days out and that kind of thing and and uh, a friend of mine that springs to mind who had three children of very different ages and different stages in education and she would home educate them all and they would work on projects around the same themes but they would all get le different learning out of it so there's lots mm -hmm. of different ways that that you can do that um 
and setting your child's stuff in small chunks that they can do independently and then come back to you and go through so that you can actually get on and do some work in that time as well. Um, if, if you're fortunate enough to, to have a partner living with you uh, and you can spread the load, maybe if there is a way that you can actually work slightly different hours and spread it between you so that, you know, particularly if you have very young children that need a lot of supervision physically, then that would be one way. But, you know, there are no easy practices answers I absolutely acknowledge that so the only other advice I can give is to look after your well-being in addition to doing that and that doesn't have to take a lot of time but doing things like simple one minute breaks to do a breathing meditation where you just count your breaths in and out and and, and focus on your breath can be really therapeutic and and you can do that multiple times a day and it just takes one minute or or a really simple um awareness meditation where you just for a minute or so just sit still and look around you and focus on three things you can hear three things you can see and three things you can feel and you know feeling could be things like feeling the, your bum on the chair you know um if you've got a bit of an achy stiff shoulder then just being aware of that that's all you need to do it's no judgment it's no you know it's just oh okay I can feel that stiffness that's something you've noticed so it's really basic stuff but it's just bringing that awareness to to the moment and just generally trying to avoid and I'm, I'm often guilty of that myself and then I have to remind myself you know just because I do this work doesn't mean that I'm, I don't fall prey to the same worries as everybody else but you know we tend to kind of look into the future and 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 worry and I can't remember who said this but somebody recently said you know the mind is a time traveler it lives in the future and it, it, it catastrophizes and projects and it lives in the past and and lives on the memories and and actually one of the things that we can do when everything around us is so chaotic and so challenging is to just live in the very very present moment and sometimes that can be the very minute you are in you know um and and just right now in this moment I'm okay my family's here we're okay you know and that's it and you just focus on that and and sometimes that's the best thing you can do for yourself to just try to not look at the future um not look at the past and think oh I wish you know because it's just not where we're at at the moment it's just right here right now where am I at uh, and and how am I uh, and just trying to really focus on the little good moments so you know it's very easy even without lockdown when you're raising kids particularly when they're young to to focus very much on the the the, the nightmares the challenges the you know the screaming matches all of that we've all been there you know? um, but actually one of the great things about positive psychology for example is is the practice of gratitude and just um ending the day by thinking about three good things that have happened mm. that day and gratitude is a wonderful thing because if we practice it deliberately like that, what it actually does, um, our mind has a negativity bias. It's, you know, as human beings, we've had to, in order to evolve and to stay alive over the, the, the centuries and millennia, the, the way we've done that is that our brains are fine-tuned to danger and, and therefore we have a negativity bias and that's what keeps us alive as a species. And it's very difficult to overcome that because our brain can't possibly take in every single stimulus that comes its way every second of every day so it has to filter stuff out and because we have a negativity bias it tends to filter out the good so that it focuses on the bad so by, by practicing gratitude deliberately just sitting down at the end of the day and writing down three good things and they can be really tiny 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 good things you know if, if you're struggling with a child and home educating and juggling work and everything it could be that for five minutes your child sat still and did some work and you could just read an email you know, write that down. Remember that one good thing. You know, it can be as minute as that. Um, it can be, you know, one smile that somebody gave you that day that just lit up your world for that moment, you know, and you just write that down. And the more you do that, the more your brain starts to focus in on and look for positives. And it doesn't mean that you ignore the bad. It just means that you, you overcome a little bit of that negativity bias. So that's what I would advise. On, based on what you were just saying on that, that the gratitude, you know, keeping a record or sort of doing three things you're grateful for on a daily basis. I remember hearing once about, um, I think it was a gratitude jar mm. and you get very tiny post-it notes. And yeah. each time, every day, uh, even maybe a couple of times a day, you just think about something that's happened. It doesn't necessarily need to have been within that last hour. It could be, you might suddenly have a memory from a few years ago. 
but you write down things on these different post-it notes mm. about good things that have happened to you, maybe good things that you've done for other people, things that you're good at, and you just keep putting these notes into this jar, you know, and and then it, it could be in, say, three weeks' time, you're feeling down for whatever reason, and you just dip your hand into that jar and start pulling out some of those notes, and it just changes you. Because yeah. you start reading all these great things that you've done or you've been a part of in some way. Absolutely. That's a really good activity to do. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see if there's been some research done into that because I know a lot of people have done the gratitude jar uh, mm. and some people do it for a year and, and then, you know, kind of open it up uh, Christmas time or whatever as a family. It's whichever way you want to do it. I think in the moment where we're having to live a lot sort of day to day, it's probably a good idea to do it over a shorter period of time mm. and, and pack it full every single day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a great thing to do. And, and the mere act of actually writing them down even if you were never going to read them again is going to help you anyway because of that Mm. overcoming the the negativity bias but obviously it can be really helpful I sometimes go back and read over some of my gratitude journal stuff that I've written you know Uh, Mm. and it's the same thing if you just dip into the jar and pick up some of those positive things then it can be really a a positive reminder that the downside when we're living in quite tricky times like now is that maybe you know in three weeks time you could be in a much worse situation that you're in now and you pick something out that reminds you of just how great things were three weeks ago and it might make you feel even more upset so there is potentially a bit of a danger with that when things are quite fraught but it it is a lovely activity to do and 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 definitely something worth doing and another thing that's really worthwhile is you know we mustn't lose sight of connection with other people even if we can't see them face to face and um so whether it's writing letters whether it's emails whether it's phone calls zoom calls uh you know sharing pub quizzes together whatever you're doing online etc but one of the things and, and even our interactions on social media is that um you know amongst all of the stuff and I do it too you know sharing of upsetting news and little rants and and all of that kind of stuff remember to also share positive stories and try and share more positive stuff than negative and that it's it's not artificially looking for positive stories but it's when you notice something good happening and those things that you would put into your gratitude stuff you know you can share those with other people as well Um, and sharing positive stories is a very powerful thing to do because if you share a positive story not only you're reliving it by telling somebody else about it but you're and you're experiencing positive emotions uh, by doing that but also you're lifting somebody else's positive emotions as well because they're reading a positive story and the ripple effect can be phenomenal from that and and actually there have been studies done over time into sort of what spreads more on social media negative stuff or or positive stuff and actually the positive stuff even though we we seem to see a lot of the negative but it's the positive stuff that actually really spreads massively Mm -hmm. um and you only need to look at you know how many cute cat videos and all of that kind of thing you know how they spread like wildfire because people like to see the stuff that lifts them up and it spreads and spreads and spreads so actually when when you're sharing a positive story it you you don't know how that little thing that you're saying to somebody could have a massive ripple effect further down the line on somebody else um, mm. that's really helpful to that person. So it's always worth doing. And um, the, the research done by Barbara Fredrickson into positive emotions is phenomenal in terms of, you know, if we're experiencing more and more positive emotions, how it can um, enable us to, to be better at problem solving, better critical thinkers, uh, better at having positive relationships, achieving more in our work and in our academic lives. Um, as well as being much more resilient as a result. So all of these things, and it also has the effect of undoing some of the negative physical effects of stress. Um, so buildup of cortisol that can affect our immune system, for example. So all of these things are really important things to bear in mind, particularly as we're going through a pandemic. In, if we think about our stress levels, if we think about how we do need to be really creative and really good at problem solving and find better ways of communicating and connecting and all of that, one of the ways to do that is to boost our positive emotions and again one of the ways to do that is through gratitude and other ways sharing stories but it can be something as simple as um 
uh, sharing, you know, even if you're outside wearing a mask and you go into a shop, you can still smile. People can still see a genuine smile in your eyes. Uh, and just making eye contact with a checkout assistant, you know, as, as you pay for your food, as you leave the supermarket uh, and just smiling. That in itself can can be a really great moment of connection with another human being. And as you're trying to avoid people and, and not get too close, you know, as you're walking along the pavement or as you're out on your walk or in a shop or something. Again, mm. if you just make eye contact with somebody and smile at each other in that awkward moment, that's another way to kind of boost positive emotions through connection. There's lots of little ways we can do that. Mm. Have you, there's, there's a website called Beautiful News. Oh, um, and it's the, the website address is actually informationisbeautiful.net slash beautiful news. Oh. And, and all it has is just some great stories from all around the world. Um, and I often share stories from that site because it's, um, it's a really, really, really nice site. Oh, wonderful. So I've just jotted that down. <laughs> I'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes for anyone who didn't Thank catch you. it. Yeah, it's a yeah, excellent site. Well, if people um, if people want to find out more about you and the work you do, where where would they go to? Okay, well, the easiest is probably if they come to my personal website because all the links go from that. So my my speaker website is um, happiness speaker dot co dot uk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's happiness-speaker.co.uk. If they're specifically interested in the work that I do with my CIC, then they can also have a look at educate2flourish.org.uk. Um, and that's the work that, that we do as an organization with schools. So that's educate2flourish.org.uk. And all my social media links are, are found from there. So I won't go through them because there are plenty. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll give you some, obviously, to put into the show notes. But uh, mm-hmm. but those are the two kind of um, main points that they can look at. And obviously, I've got three books out there. So depending, you know, Recipe for Happiness is is more aimed at sort of everybody looking after their own well-being. Um, Character Toolkit for Teachers is well-being practical activities it's aimed at primary school teachers but to be honest I've used it in a lot of adult training so there's a lot of stuff that we can do as adults in there and that parents could use with their kids at home as well Um, Mm. and then for flourishing sake is more about the sort of bigger picture for education and how we can uh, improve things in education if people wanted to find out a bit more about that as well. And that, that last book, is that would that be useful for parents as well? Uh, for flourishing sake, probably not as much because that's really more about how to embed it, uh, well-being in education. Um, so mm. for parents, I would say Recipe for Happiness and Character Toolkit for Teachers because even though it says it's for teachers, like I say, the activities, a lot of them we can adapt and do at home. And also, sorry, the, the Character Toolkit Strengths cards are ideal for parents as well because um, they, you know, using them in schools might be a bit problematic at the moment with people not being able to share resources, but obviously within your family you can mm. use them. Um, and there's a booklet in there that gives you some suggested activities to do with the cards um, to just get you started. And then obviously it's down to your own imagination what else you do with them, but there's lots you can do. And there's some really nice little activities there to get you started as well. And so are these books, I'm guessing they're available on Amazon, but are they also available on your website? They're not available via my website, no. They're available on Amazon, but also on uh, all of the major online retailer, book retailers, So, um, and, and not just in the UK either. So they're, they're available in Australia and Canada, all over the place. I, we even saw uh, Character Toolkit for Teachers on Amazon Japan. <laughs> so they are oh, not translated at the moment, I must say, but uh, they are available in English language, but uh, all over the place and not just on Amazon. So um, for those that either don't have access to Amazon because I believe in Australia for example they don't have Amazon but the book is available from um, I think there's Dimux and all the other major sort of uh, book uh, retailers uh, retailers, um, and also from um, so certainly for flourishing sake and character toolkit the book and the cards they're available from the publisher as well which is uh, jkp.com but yeah they're available on most uh, most online book retailers so and, and speaking of books, is there a book that you particularly like that you recommend to people? Yeah, I mean, there there are so many, but I think 
right now because I think connection is so so important Mm. Um, one that I would really recommend it's a beautiful book to read it's by Barbara Fredrickson who I've mentioned before who's done some great research into positive uh, emotions Mm. Uh, and it's a book called Love Mm. 2.0 and it's not about romantic love but it's about um, the the positive emotion of love which she describes as the supreme positive emotion and she talks about lots of ways that we can have those what she calls micro moments of connection to boost our positive emotions and boy do we need those right now Mm. so about half the book is about all the research into it and fantastic really fascinating stories into all this stuff and the power of human connection and uh, and all the stuff that's happening you know neurochemically etc that's really interesting and all the studies that she's done or supervised on this and then the second half of the book is actually packed with activities so it's it's a really nice book to get Mm. yeah i've heard it i've heard a lot of good things about that book um, and, and finally, um, Frederica, is there uh, a quotation that you like? Yes, um, there is a lovely lady called Deborah Searle, who she was the very first professional speaker I ever saw on stage back when I worked in recruitment. And she spoke at our annual conference when I worked for a big uh, recruitment company. And uh, she she became famous for single-handedly rowing across the Atlantic when her husband, who was a champion rower, actually discovered he had a phobia of the open ocean. And uh, she decided to carry on on her own. And it's a fascinating story and if you if you get a chance to watch her TEDx talk online it's a really good talk to to look at and one of the things that has stuck with me ever since uh, I, I saw her and I saw her back in I think oh I don't know 2004 or something like that so it's been a little while um, was uh, the phrase choose your attitude which was actually a phrase that her twin sister told her uh, while she was stuck on that boat when she was thinking of giving up and, and she was like well you know do you want us to come and get you and she said no and that's so her sister said to her well in that case choose your attitude and that's what she's been doing ever since and and as she says in in her TEDx talk you know she doesn't always choose a very positive attitude (laughs) but at least it's a choice rather than being kind of dragged along by a mood or whatever choose what attitude you're going to have and 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 live it with gusto for that day Um, and I think when we're going through really challenging times at the moment choosing our attitude is really important because we can't always choose the circumstances that we're in but we can choose how we respond to those circumstances and how we manage ourselves in those circumstances absolutely thank you for your time and and for the great suggestions and and stories that you've you've given to the listeners so thank you very much absolute pleasure it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you this morning tony next week is episode 12 and it is with rian doris and he recently did a ted talk called why hustle doesn't lead to success And he's going to talk a lot about the science of flow states and coaching techniques for flow and peak performance. So we're going to hear a lot more from Rian Doris. That's in next week's episode. Hope you enjoyed this week's show with Frederica Roberts. Um, If you did enjoy uh, some of the things that she discussed and you know anyone who maybe would benefit from listening to some of the the things that Federica talked about, why not share the episode with them? Be great if you could leave a review for the show and why not subscribe while you're at it as well and hope you have a great week.